we meet Ezra for the first time in Nehemiah chapter 8. Ezra was a priest who led the second major return to the land from captivity 13 years earlier. His emphasis had been on preaching the law of God to the people of God in the land of God. For 13 years before Nehemiah arrived, Ezra had been preparing the way for revival by his faithful preaching ministry. My friends, it may take a long time of faithfully preaching God's word before the word begins to bear fruit in people's lives. I find it interesting that verse 1 tells us how the people gathered together in the town square and they asked Ezra the scribe to bring the book of the law of Moses. They asked him. They were ready to listen to God now. And so they held a great assembly for Bible preaching, which lasted five hours. They built a platform for the occasion, and they paid attention to the scriptures. They were hungry for the word of God. Sometimes it takes a lot, but when God finally gets our attention, we come back to the scriptures, because scripture is the root of all reformation. In the foyer of the Free Theological Seminary in Oslo, Norway, there's a unique display. When the seminary was founded by the sacrificial giving of humble Christians from all over the country, these people presented the seminary with a symbolic gift. They cut down a large Norwegian spruce tree, dug out the root system from the ground with the trunk, and carefully cleaned the tree stump and roots. The gleaming stump with its root system intact was placed in the foyer of the seminary. A brass plaque read, If the roots are healthy, so will be the tree. If the roots are healthy, so will be the tree. My friends, Scripture is the root of all reformation. If we would have any lasting reformation in our lives and in our churches, it will start with Scripture. Far too many preachers today are using the Scripture as a resource to sanctify their ideas and their messages instead of using the Bible as a source for grasping God's ideas and God's messages. They use the Bible to spiritualize their own clever messaging designed to attract people to their churches instead of calling people to surrender to the Bible as God's message for life. When all the frills and all the gimmicks, all the bells and all the whistles, all the fads and methods of life have been tried, and we are still spiritually thirsty, we will come back to the Bible for true reformation. I want us to see four principles about Scripture from Nehemiah chapter 8 that will ground our spiritual lives in the Word of God. Principle number one, our attitude toward the Scripture must be reverence. Our attitude toward the Scripture must be reverence. Nehemiah 8, 1 through 5. And all the people gathered as one man at the square, which was in front of the water gate. 
And they asked Ezra the scribe to bring the book of the law of Moses, which the Lord had given to Israel. Then Ezra the priest brought the law before the assembly of men, women, and all who could listen with understanding on the first day of the seventh month. He read from it before the square which was in front of the water gate from early morning until midday in the presence of men and women, those who could understand. And all the people were attentive to the book of the law. Ezra the scribe stood at a wooden podium which they had made for that purpose. And beside him stood Mattathiah, Shema, Aniah, Uriah, Hilkiah, and Maasiah on his right hand, and Padiah, Mishael, Malkijah, Hashum, Hashbanah, Zechariah, and Meshulam on his left hand. Ezra opened the book in the sight of all the people, for he was standing above all the people. And when he opened it, all the people stood up. After all the preparation was completed, Ezra opened the book. The book, of course, was not a book as we know it, since books such as we have were not around in those days. It was, of course, a scroll. Most likely, it was a scroll of the book of Deuteronomy. But perhaps he read scrolls from the entire Pentateuch that day. What I find so interesting in verse 5 is that the people stood up when he opened the scroll. It's possible that they remained standing for five hours as the scriptures were read and explained to them. Why? Why did they stand? They stood out of reverence for the scriptures. They wanted to demonstrate respect for the word of God. The Jewish rabbis have taught ever since that day the Jews should stand for the public reading of the scriptures. In Eastern Orthodox churches, they stand for the entire service out of respect for God. There are churches in Scotland that have an interesting custom. When the service begins, a man called a beadle enters the sanctuary carrying a Bible, which he places on the pulpit and opens it to the reading for the day. Then he escorts the minister to the pulpit. The people stand when the beetle enters with the Bible, and they remain standing until the minister gets ready to preach. Dr. James Boyce, the late pastor of 10th Presbyterian Church, says that they tried to introduce the same practice to American churches in 1982 at the International Council on Biblical Inerrancy that was held in San Diego. They began each session of the day by following that Scottish custom. He said it was impressive as 3,000 delegates rose in respect for the scriptures and then were seated again. Now, I'm not suggesting that we worship this particular book with its leather bindings and fine pages, but I am suggesting that we find fresh ways to show our respect for the Bible because of its content. This book is the Word of God. It is the foundation for our faith. Everything we know about Christ comes from this book. And apart from Christ, there is no Christianity. When my father was preaching in Africa a number of years ago, 
he would regularly preach to crowds that had walked for half a day and then stood for hours to hear the word of God preached. When I was teaching a seminar in Panama a few years ago, men traveled by bus for six to eight hours to study the Bible. Some walked down from the mountains for several hours before they could even catch a bus. They were hungry for the word of God. Yet, here in our American churches so often, people are so casual about the Bible. They clamor for clever talks rather than the serious study of Scripture. Is it any wonder that we find so little revival in our American churches when our attitudes towards Scripture are so casual? How far we have fallen as a nation from the days of our founding fathers. I do not believe that we were ever a Christian nation. But in the early days of our country, even non-Christians respected the Bible. Thomas Jefferson, that old reprobate deist, wrote, The Bible is the cornerstone of liberty. Andrew Jackson, our seventh president, said, The Bible is the rock on which our republic stands. Daniel Webster wrote, There is no solid basis for civilization, but in the word of God. Now we find that not only does our society at large not respect the Bible, but many who claim to be Christians have little respect for it as well. No wonder we have so little reformation in our churches. We need a new attitude toward the scriptures, my friends, an attitude of reverence. Second principle, Nehemiah 8.6. Our preparation for the scriptures must be submission. Our preparation must be submission. Then Ezra blessed the Lord, the great God, and all the people answered, Amen, Amen, while lifting up their hands. Then they bowed low and worshipped the Lord with their faces to the ground. The people worshipped God in preparation to study God's word. They got their hearts right with God in worship before they sought his will in submission. The word translated worship means to prostrate oneself before a monarch or a superior. So worship requires us to surrender to our ruler. The word means that we demonstrate our submission to God by our words and our actions. When we worship, we say to God, God, you can do with me what you will, whatever you want. You are God. I surrender to you. The word amen is an expression of submission. It means so be it. It affirmed to God that he could do anything that he wanted to do. Amen means that God can help us and God can judge us. God can kill us and God can save us. So be it. Amen. We surrender to his will. The Israelites demonstrated that submission by their actions. They bowed with their faces to the ground and they raised their hands heavenward. Now I know that many of us Baptists, myself included, are often uncomfortable with hand-raising. 
We feel it calls attention to ourselves. We're self-conscious about it, I suppose. However, raising our hands in worship is biblical. And I have learned the freedom that comes from raising my hands in worship as long as it's with the right heart attitude toward God. That's the key, of course. Terry Wardle points out in his book, Exalt Him, that it helps to think about raising our hands and what that means in our culture. It's a sign of surrender. Even children know what to do when someone says, stick them up. Raising our hands is also a sign of dependence. Children request things from their parents by reaching out with their upraised hands. Raised hands is also an expression of love. When my girls were little, I was always delighted when my girls came running to me with their arms held open. Raised arms say, hug me, hug me. When they're hurt, they hold out their arms for comfort. When they're happy, they hold out their arms for love. Teenagers come with their outstretched hands and palms up to show that they want something from us. Perhaps as we grow into spiritual adolescence, we begin to treat the worship of God with palms up as well. How appropriate that we express our hunger for God, our dependence on God, our surrender to God, our need from God with uplifted arms like little children coming to our Heavenly Father. Worship prepares us for a fresh encounter with God in His Word. As we grow old in the faith, we can lose those childlike qualities of worship, and then perhaps we lose the joy of seeking God in His Word as well. The scriptures can do little in our lives until we learn submission to the author of the scriptures. Do you seek a fresh encounter with God every time you come to church to listen to a sermon? To listen to his word? Third principle. Our use of the scriptures must be expository. Our use of the scriptures must be expository, Nehemiah 8, 7, and 8. Also, Jeshua, Bani, Sherebiah, Jamin, Akub, Shebathai, Hodiah, Masiah, Kalita, Azariah, Josabad, Hanan, Peliah, the Levites, they all explained the law to the people while the people remained in their place. They read from the book of the law, translating to give the sense so that they understood the reading. I want you to notice that the Levites preached the Bible to the people in the worship service. We are even told how they preached it. There were at least two and probably three components to their preaching ministry. First, there was the public reading of the scripture. Second, there was the explaining of Scripture. Many scholars argue that there were three components if you add translating the Scripture as one of those components. The Hebrew word for translating or interpreting 
means to make distinct or to explain with a sense of separating or distinguishing the meaning of the text, breaking it apart for people. Interestingly, interestingly it is the Hebrew word for Pharisee. The Pharisees were called the separators as a derogatory term, of course, which they later took on as a source of pride. They saw themselves as the expositors of the law of God, the separators of the law of, the law of God. Translating and explaining are the equivalent of preaching as they first exegete or interpret or break down the text and then they explain its significance for the people. That's what we do in preaching. The Hebrew word translated read in verse 8 means to call out or proclaim the scriptures. And in verse 7, they explained what they proclaimed. They helped people understand the text in verse 8. The Levites were busy interpreting, explaining, and applying the word of God to the lives of the people. In other words, they were preaching. They were doing Bible exposition. Remember, they didn't have public address systems, so the Levites probably moved around in the crowds to make certain that people understood what was being proclaimed. The result of their expository preaching was revival in the nation of Israel. Reformation followed exposition. I like this definition of reformation. Reformation is the recovery of biblical truth that leads to the purifying of one's theology. And oh, do we need some purifying of our theology today, my friends. Many today have adopted what is nothing less than Christian relativism. We pick and choose what we want to believe or the interpretation that suits our purposes. We take it or leave it depending on our tastes. We can pick and choose what works for us, what works for me. J.I. Packer describes theologians as the church's plumbers and sewage men securing a flow of pure truth and eliminating theological effluent. Now, that's certainly not a very flattering view of theologians or preachers, but it is quite accurate. We need preachers who will devote themselves to purifying our theology because the waters can get pretty muddy very quickly. Expository preaching, as you know, is my passion in life, and Nehemiah 8 is a foundational example for all of our ministries as preachers. The sequential and continuous reading and explaining of Scripture is the oldest form of preaching in the Bible. It is clear that this pattern was used by the early apostles as standard practice in the worship services of the first century church. They were simply following the same pattern that they had practiced in the synagogues and developed it for Christian preaching. Jewish worship made the reading and explanation of Scripture central to their worship in the synagogues. The leader of the synagogue would read, or have someone else read, a passage of Scripture 
in a sequential and continuous manner throughout the year. Then someone would explain the text to the people. Expository preaching was practiced from the time of Nehemiah on in the Bible, and the early church followed the same practice of sequential Bible exposition. Paul told Timothy in 1 Timothy 4 verse 13, Give attention, devote yourself to, give attention to the, one, public reading of Scripture, two, the exhortation, and three, the teaching. Timothy was to follow the same threefold pattern as Ezra back in Nehemiah 8. The preaching of the Word of God is central to the worship of God. We cannot worship the God of truth unless we know the truth of God. If you study church history, you will see that every great revival begins with a renewed emphasis on the Word of God. D.L. Moody said, the best way to revive a church is to build a fire in the pulpit. Every reformation in history has coincided with a period of great preaching. We can have all the mausoleums of the modern world in which to gather, or all the musical skills of the professionals. But without the exposition of the Bible at the core, our worship will either degenerate into superficial emotionalism or sterile liturgy. John Wycliffe and John Huss died to make the Bible available to the common man in Europe long before the Reformation, but their preaching of truth paved the way for that Reformation, led by great preachers like Martin Luther and John Calvin. It is the truth of God's Word which must transform our lives. Experience that is not grounded in truth is superficial, but truth that does not change our experience is sterile. We must not st settle for orthodoxy, that is, right truth, without orthopraxy, which is right practice, and without orthocardia, meaning a right heart. Right truth from God must translate into right practice in life and a right heart for God. That leads to the fourth principle in verse 9. Our response to the scriptures must be repentance. Our response must be repentance. Then Nehemiah, who was the governor, and Ezra the priest and scribe, and the Levites who taught the people, said to all the people, This day is holy to the Lord your God. Do not mourn or weep. For all the people were weeping when they heard the words of the law. The leaders had to exhort the people to stop weeping and mourning over their sin, which had been exposed by the scriptures. God's word is like a floodlight on the soul. God's word always accomplishes God's purpose in this world. God said in Isaiah 55:11, So will my word be which goes forth from my mouth. It will not return to me empty without accomplishing what I desire and without succeeding in the matter for which I sent it. When we expose the word to people, 
the word exposes sin in people. God's word exposes us, and we are overwhelmed when we begin to take it seriously. This is revival. Real revival takes place when the word of God overwhelms the soul of the saint with his or her utter unworthiness so that repentance takes place. Repentance transforms our experience. My friends, never fear experience generated by the Spirit of God and grounded in the truth of God, but never seek an emotional experience for the sake of experience either. There is a difference between Reformation and Revival. Reformation, which is a recovery of God's truth, precedes Revival. One writer said, Revival is the application of Reformation truth to human experience. I often hear Christians pray for Revival. But should we pray for Revival? Not unless we are willing to first pray for reformation. We need a recovery of God's word as central to our lives because that is the root of reformation. Reformation of our theology leads to revival in our lives. It's not either or, it is both and. We need both reformation and revival in our churches. Revival meetings and methods of church revitalization can and do become increasingly human-centered and experience-oriented if we're not careful. And an emphasis on revival alone can lead to a diminishing of the value of the scriptures. This kind of church revitalization leads to comments like this. I don't want to listen to all that theology stuff. Give me something practical and emotional. I want to be inspired when I come to church. Well, such thinking degenerates into manufactured revival, which does little for the soul. It is revival without reformation. True revival in our lives is the result of a reformation in our thinking. Now let's look at the fifth principle about Scripture in verses 10 through 12. Our encouragement from the Scriptures leads to celebration. Our encouragement from the Scriptures leads to celebration. Then he said to them, Go, eat of the fat, drink of the sweet, and send portions to him who has nothing prepared. For this day is holy to our Lord. Do not be grieved, for the joy of the Lord is your strength. So the Levites calmed all the people, saying, Be still, for the day is holy. Do not be grieved. All the people went away to eat, to drink, to send portions, and to celebrate a great festival, because they understood the words which had been made known to them. Three times in these verses, the Levites tell the people to stop grieving. They are to stop mourning and start rejoicing. Don't continue in pain or hurting over your sin. Yes, 
The scriptures expose our sin and lead us to repentance, but they also encourage us to celebrate our forgiveness in Jesus Christ. They encourage us to celebrate the grace and love of God. The Bible encourages us to rejoice in the faithfulness of God, even in our own unfaithfulness. The Levites tell the people to celebrate a great festival. The term celebrate means to make a great rejoicing. It means mirth, merriment, and pleasure. We are to stop dwelling on our sin and start rejoicing in our Savior. They were to get out their best food and their tastiest desserts. They were to share their bounty with those who had little. And they were to have fun in a great festival to the Lord because they understood what the scriptures were teaching them. The Jewish people have a festival called Simchat Torah, which means rejoicing in the law. They parade in a circle inside the synagogue seven or more times with a different person holding the scrolls of the law each time. Children carry flags with inscriptions honoring the word of God. And it's a time of great celebration for the law of God. Why? Why were they to celebrate the law? Well, we're given two reasons in these verses. First, they were to celebrate the law because the day is holy to the Lord, in verse 10. That meant it was sacred, set apart for God. It's not a time to focus on ourselves, but on God. It's his day. It's holy. We can become so consumed with our own failures in life then we cease to worship God. And God says, stop it. Stop wallowing in despair. This is a time to focus on God and his grace toward us, not yourselves and your sin. Whenever we are the most depressed over our own failures, we need worship to get our eyes back on God and not on ourselves. The second reason why we are to celebrate is because the joy of the Lord is our strength. I like that expression, don't you? When we are the most unhappy and hurting, it is the joy of the Lord which gives us strength because we don't have that joy in ourselves. It is his joy that he gives to us. Jack Hayford wrote, Lord, you cause my heart to laugh and make my mouth to sing, for the joy of your way increases every day, and I find my hands are reaching out in love. We find in these verses the cornerstone of, ever, of any reformation in our personal lives or in our churches. It is the Bible. We do not have the option of revival without Scripture, because Scripture is the root of all Reformation. I read about one pastor who starts each Basics of the Faith class for the new believers. He starts each Basics of the Faith class with a jar full of beans, and he asks the student to guess the number of beans in the jar and write down their estimates on a pad of paper. Then next to those estimates, he makes another list. This time, 
they list their favorite songs. When the lists are completed, he tells them the correct number of beans in the jar, and the whole class determines who was closest to the correct number. Then he turns to the list of favorite songs, and he asks, And which one of these songs is closest to being right? Well, the students always protest that there's not a right answer to a favorite song because it's merely a matter of taste or opinion. There's no right or wrong to it. Then he asks them another question. When you decide what to believe in terms of your faith, is it more like guessing the number of beans or more like choosing your favorite song? And he always gets the same answer, he said. Choosing one's faith is more like choosing one's favorite song. And that, my friends, is Christian relativism. We must avoid a theology of personal preference if we are to have genuine reformation in our churches. The Bible is absolute truth. And there can only be one correct interpretation of any passage of Scripture. Scripture does not mean whatever we think it means. It's not a matter of our personal preference. The closer we are to the right interpretation in our understanding, the closer we are to absolute truth. There's a right or wrong. We must always submit our interpretations of Scripture to the test of Scripture and seek to understand the truth before we practice it. My friends, theology is not incidental to our faith. Theology is essential to our faith, and Scripture is the root of Reformation. 